And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I have a handful of Q&As that I want to address today. Uh, some very interesting ones, I think. Uh, but I want to start by talking about hypothetical results. In what uh, Chris Pedersen and I have been working on in introducing uh, this new two-fund-for-life strategy, uh, it is based on a lot of past history. And whenever we look backwards uh, to make decisions for the future, it's important to understand whatever the limitations might be of that view. We all intuitively know or intellectually know that we cannot know the future. And in fact, oftentimes, if left to our own memories, the stories we have about the past are, are inaccurate. When we look backwards at returns and risk, uh, even that could be misleading. If we, for example, look at the results of someone who has managed a portfolio of individual stocks over a period of 20, 30, 40 years, uh, it isn't that it's a meaningless result, but it is really not one that I could suggest would be replicated in a reasonable fashion because there are too many moving variables, moving parts, uh, including all of the emotions that that manager had in picking what he picked or she. But at least in the work that we're doing, we are looking back at not just uh, the best of the best in large cap growth or value or small cap growth or value, but we're looking at the entire asset class. And, and that's different. That isn't biased, except to the extent that those asset classes are established by somebody who has a bias. Uh, oftentimes, when we talk about the, the return of the S&P 500 since 1926, well, there was no S&P 500 in 1926, there wasn't an S&P 500 until 1957. So prior to that, this is really the work of people building these portfolios of 500 large companies that would theoretically have been qualified to be in the index way back when. And even to the extent that we talk about small cap or large cap, those can have uh, be based on major differences. If I look at the at the uh, large cap value index at Vanguard, it's very different from the large cap value index at DFA. In, in the case of Vanguard, the average size company is ninety five point six billion. In the case of DFA, sixty two point four. If I look at the price-to-book ratio, it's much higher at Vanguard, 2.2 times the book value. 
and with the DFA portfolio, it's 1.7. Well, what are, what are the what does it matter what the size of the company is or what that that uh, price to book ratio might be? Well, what matters is people believe who've looked at the numbers over a long, long period of time that smaller is better than large, which would mean that. Uh, a smaller, large-cap value portfolio that's one-third smaller than the larger one, well, the smaller one should do better. And that with the most discounted value orientation should do better, which should give DFA an advantage over Vanguard in the long run. And to the extent that somebody looks backwards through the eyes of Vanguard compared to DFA, those those results, if we went back to 1926 and tried to recreate that large cap value portfolio based on the size company you're looking for and the degree of, of, of value that you're looking for, well, those returns would be expected to be very different. Could literally be uh, 1% a year difference. And 1% a year, as we all know, if we start young enough, is life-changing. So the whole thing is very complex. I, I, even to the extent that you have to, you have to make some leaps of, of faith. Let's say that we look at small-cap value back in the uh, 20s, late 20s, and the 30s. We know that it wasn't an asset class that the world was focused on as a great place to have your money. But the companies were relatively small. They'd be smaller than today. And they would be relatively illiquid when you tried to trade them. So if anybody tried to show you a track record based on trading the market, and if you didn't take into consideration the very high cost of trading then it wouldn't be anything close to reality. And even on a buy-and-hold basis, where you might hold a particular asset class for, I should say, a particular company within an asset class for many years, and there is no trading possibly, uh, even that would, would be a very different return than what you would likely get today, both because more people know about small cap value today, but also because today there's high liquidity compared to what it was like back in the 20s and the 30s. So what do you do with the numbers you get from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s if the market was different than today? Now, it didn't mean that the stock didn't have reason to go up or go down. That was the same then as it is now. But the cost of doing business was very different. The cost of owning a mutual fund was different. Of course, there was no such thing as an index fund between 1926, when we have all of this data, and uh, 1976, when John Bogle finally brings out his is S&P 500 index fund. So what we can, I think, legitimately do, and you can be critical if you want, we can say, well, you know something, the world has changed, and today we have higher liquidity. We have narrow bid-ask spreads. We have very, very low commission costs compared to what was paid 
during the period of regulated commissions that were sky high. So, what what does what does this then mean to the re- results we see looking backwards? Well, we're making the assumption that the market was as efficient then as it is today. And some people might even conclude that that the last 40 years is a better view of investing than looking at the last 90 years. So we have been tasked in order to make the case for this new strategy that we're going to be introducing in a, a, a few weeks, about the 20th or 23rd of, of October. And our knowledge is going to be based on, on what we know about small cap value, large cap value, small cap blend, and the S&P 500 through the eyes of DFA because it is their database. And yes, the results would be different if you looked at it through the same study, but the eyes of Vanguard based on how they build their portfolios. Because of what, of, of what help would it be if, in fact, I, uh, we, we are advocates of more deeply discounted value and smaller average size companies? I mean, the value will come in trying to match as close to, to what we're doing today in terms of looking backwards. And I think that we do the right thing. We show you not just the good times, but we show you the bad. We highlight how miserably you're going to feel if you go through a, 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 a period of a declining market. And by the way, that could be happening right before you were planning to retire. These are big, serious decisions that we're making. And what Chris and, 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 and I are trying to do, and with the help of Daryl Balls, and certainly for me, the help of Rich Buck, we're trying to figure out how dirt simple could we make a portfolio. In many cases, not for you. Uh, not for you because you don't mind the complexities that uh, people like us might throw at you to put together a broadly diversified portfolio with all these different asset classes. But we all have relatives. I've been talking to them. I've been actually exposing exactly what we're going to be recommending to a number of people who I sense do not want to deal with the complexities that that we've been preaching all these years, but they want to do it and be as close to what we're doing as they can. And so that is what we are working on. But I want to make the strongest case that I can, that by looking at the entire asset class, the index fund. And again, those those indexes can be built with many different companies. So so it I can't say that one number represents all. But here's what I do know that we're trying to figure out not just what two funds you should own, 
But what are the probabilities owning these two funds that you are, in fact, going to get uh, the higher rate of return than you would if you just put it into the S&P 500? And the, and the highest probability that I know of getting the return of the S&P 500 itself, and it would be the same kind of a thought process regarding small cap value or large cap value or small cap blend, the highest probability I know of getting that return that the S&P 500 has produced, hypothetically going back to 1926, is to own all of the companies. And I know from the work of Dr. Bessembinder, and I've talked about this in the past, that it was just a handful of companies that produced most of the return in the broad market from 1926 through 2016. 4% of the companies, in fact, less than 4%, was really the force behind the 10% compound rate of return we're all so proud of. But the other 96%, or a little more than 96%, average T-bill rates. So to the extent that we are facing this decision about how to make this very, very simple, we still want to lock on to the idea of doing it with passive, massively diversified portfolios, in asset classes that we think are going to give you significantly better returns uh, than the S&P 500 and similar indexes. And I have to add, before I go on to taking the questions, I have to add that for all the good work that we will do to help you be better, and to reach your financial goals. And the reality is that if I can get a hold of a 20-year-old and the work that Chris has done, that we have a better chance of helping them get there than we can a 70-year-old. Because time is on the side of the 20-year-old, and that time I'm concerned about is just the matter of the luck of when we're doing this. I've talked in the past about how from 1975 to 99, the S&P 500 compounded at better than 17%, but from 2000 through 2017, it's less than 6%. That is just the luck of the draw. And what I can't say, regardless of whether I'm talking to a 20-year-old or a 70-year-old, you're old, it's what's going to happen for the next 10 or 20 years, but I can have much higher sense of anticipated success for the 20-year-old because time is on that person's side. I'll be long gone by the time they are celebrating the results of the two-fund-for-life strategy. And let me just repeat one more time. Whether we look at real-time results that Morningstar might produce for a particular index, for a particular actively managed fund, or we look at the, the, the results that are built from the good work of the academic community trying their best to replicate these asset classes, 
that it is all hypothetical, whether it really happened or it didn't, because you cannot, as we have said so many times, you cannot buy the past, but you can learn from it. The first question that I'm going to address uh, comes from a 63-year-old grandfather of three girls. And uh, he would like to set up some accounts for each of them in the small cap value fund to do his best with the help of uh, a lifetime of market returns to turn that $3,000 into $50 million. And basically what he wants me to do is he wants me to walk through the steps. And I'm going to do that. But before I do, uh, I want to share a comment that came in from a uh, uh, fellow that has been following our work for some time and has been uh, sharing it with the family. I'd like to read what he has to say. It was at the end of a very long email with lots of good questions, most of which I'll be addressing in another podcast, but I couldn't help but share this. Last of all, my family and I are so very grateful for your advice regarding setting aside money for children in the hopes of it growing into an amount that will allow them to retire with less fear about living their savings. Although we didn't do it at birth, we chose to place $3,000 per child in a UGMA, that's the Uniform Gifts to Minors Act uh, way of setting up an account. Uh, by the way, that means there's a custodian, a, a single custodian uh, for a, uh, an individual child uh, who's a minor. Uh, but they've set these up in a UGMA, and they have made up for the lost years by adding amounts equal to a 9% compounded interest per year as a catch-up. Their grandfather, upon hearing of our plan, decided that he wanted to leave his legacy in the form of a monthly contribution to those accounts so they will continue to grow and dollar-cost average. I can think of no better way to leave your mark on family than through such a sincere attempt to ensure wealth is shared with future generations. My daughters, currently ages seven and four, will be expected to continue this tradition for their children and subsequent heirs. I, I read this paragraph uh, to my wife, and even reading it here, it, 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 it creates the same emotion of such happiness that when I read it to her, I teared up. I teared up, one, because it gives me such a sense of, of, of satisfaction to know that we help people think through this process. But I also teared up because it made me realize this is something that we should be thinking of in terms of the future. I, um, 
we gifted money to all of our grandchildren when they were born. But the idea of setting up in our in our will a trust that is there to fund these kind of accounts, not just for our children, but our children's children and their children. Doesn't have to be a lot of money. It could be the $365 a year. I just I just think that's a, a wonderful idea. Now I want to go back to this question from the 63-year-old grandfather of the three girls. He says, I do have a couple of questions. Do you have a recommended fund, a mutual fund or indexed ETF? And do I need to have a, a parent co-own under this Uniform Gift to Minors Act. And when they have taxable income, how do I transfer the money into the fund, or actually out of the fund and into a Roth IRA without paying taxes? And then says, thank you so much for your time and the info on your website. Let me address the very easy part, and that is the recommended uh, ETFs. whether you're at Fidelity, we have a Fidelity ETF uh, portfolio that we recommend. We have a Vanguard ETF portfolio. Um, we, we also have uh, ETFs at, uh, that are called best-in-class, and uh, you could certainly uh, use those to, to just pick out the small-cap value uh, ETF. That's going to be very obvious. You may even choose in some cases to make it a U.S. small cap value fund and an international small cap value fund. Some people who are doing this are toning down the aggressiveness a little bit, but they're staying all value. And we have a, uh, in those portfolios, you'll be able to pick out, particularly when you look at the best in class, uh, value for U.S. and international both large and small. That part's relatively easy. But let me talk about the opening the account and in whose name it should be listed. And let's realize that there's going to be a whole lot of trust going on here about in whose best interest uh, the money is going to be Uh, prudently invested, and what things could happen that would interfere with the long-term plan. Yes, you could pick one of the parents to be the custodian, and when that child is of the age of majority, uh, they then have the right to do whatever they want with that money, which means hopefully you will have educated Somebody would have, will have, and I think it'd be kind of neat if you could, since uh, you're the source of the investment and you're the one with uh, this lifetime dream for them, which you might be able to impress on them better than anyone else, because you're already there, uh, where you'd like to think in terms of them being age 63 someday, and what would you want for them that you might not have today? 
But here's the, here's the challenge, is at age 18 in most cases, the child is the age of majority, and will they in fact follow through with what it is that you have intended to do with this money? If you do not put it in a custodial account like that, then whoever's name it's in is going to maintain the control. And at that point, for example, in fact, maybe even sooner than 18, they might be making money that could be put, matched in a in an IRA, hopefully a Roth IRA, uh, because there are, like Schwab, has uh, a, a, the ability to open a custodial Roth IRA. But to the extent that you maintain it until it gets into the Roth in your name, then they can't spend it. Now, yes, once you put it into the Roth, it's possible they could cash that out. So this this $3,000 to $50 million has some, some big hurdles, and a lot of people would think the big hurdles are the return on the investments. I think the big hurdles are going to be whether or not people follow through as you intend. Now, if you do not do not put this in a custodial account, then whoever whose name it is in is going to have to pay some taxes if some earnings are made and distributed within a mutual fund or an ETF. Uh, that's the nature of a taxable account. But in the case of a, an ETF, the taxes are going to be very, very small. But eventually, when you liquidate those ETFs and you turn them into this Roth IRA for the grandchild, there will be, in a taxable account, a long-term capital gains. And hopefully, it's sizable. And uh, I, I, I guess it would, in essence be uh, up to the parent. Well, actually, the parent would have to pay that tax. But maybe that's their contribution uh, to this whole process. So it does cost a little more than $3,000. I do think that once you start the process of moving the money from your account the taxable account for whether it, it could it could be you by the by the way, uh, uh, Grandpa, you could have it in your account as custodian for them uh, if you wanted to do it that way, or you could leave it in your account and have it earmarked f- for that purpose. You're only sixty three, hopefully in good health. But the, this transition from the taxable account into the Roth IRA that's on its way trying to be worth $50 million, it's going to take a number of years to get that money moved over. And um, that is a process that requires a little bit of work. And so what we do is we do our best to educate these kids what this whole process is about, what it would have meant to you if you had had this advantage, and what you hope it will mean for them. Question number two. I'll read from uh, the body of his uh, question. It's uh, much longer than this, but let me just uh, focus in on this part. 
I've talked to various financial folks at Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, and Chase. In general, I was greatly disappointed. Suggestions were often very biased, or follow-through was very poor. In the end, I had no confidence in any of them. That stated, they all seemed nice. I need more than nice. I need a financial professional. Part of the issue for me is that I cannot sit down with someone during normal business hours due to my work. My accountant in New Orleans, where I am from and plan to retire, knows of several folks that he says are good financial planners, but he has never put me in contact with any. I am just about four miles north of D.C. in Maryland. No one at work has any financial planners to recommend. Folks in the D.C. area do not ever seem to recommend someone to do much of anything. (laughs) I had to throw that in. That's interesting. Uh, This seems typical during the four years I've worked here since 2014. Boy, this is um, a a challenge that has been shared by many of the folks that have uh, emailed me over the years looking for an advisor they can can trust. Uh, I recently had somebody ask me uh, uh, here on Bainbridge Island if I knew anybody who I would recommend for them to speak with. And there are so many really talented, very talented uh, financial advisors. And I gave them a a list of five or six, maybe even ten reasons I thought this particular person would uh, be good for them because it was not only a matter of investment questions, but there were some, some tax planning and things that I knew this this particular person was very good at. And I always hold my breath and cross my fingers when I refer somebody to somebody else because I can have that sense of trust and feel like this is somebody that that I don't have any problem questioning their abilities. But you never know, and personalities are different. And I recently saw them. I I didn't even know they actually met with the person I had recommended. Uh, But they said, both of them, we absolutely love him. Uh, and, And that means that not only is this person likely going to be able to give them some good financial advice, but if they have a sense of trust and a sense of connection and the belief that this person is going to act in their best interest, it's not just about solving the problem for the next year. It's about finding a source of advice just like a great cardiologist might be to those of us who have faced those kind of problems. We don't want to be constantly on the out on the lookout for a better cardiologist. We want to find one we trust, knows what to do, and cares about us. Anyway, 
this person is not here in the Pacific Northwest. This person is back in D.C. And uh, my sense is that this is a person who probably wants to be eyeball to eyeball with somebody. Now, I know I used to be in the investment advisory business, and I saw how natural the advisors could could use uh, these the software where they could just on their computer be sitting there, and, and I think WebEx uh, was what we used at that time, and have a conversation like you're in the same room. But that isn't always the same. Because there is sometimes a, you know that connection that comes from really going eyeball to eyeball, and particularly when you got to watch four eyeballs, the uh, the husband and the wife. So, what I recommend for this person to consider uh, is to check out Garrett Planning Network in the D.C. area. I went to the GarrettPlanningNetwork.com site. That's, that's what it is. Just type in Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, Planning Network. And uh, I found there were a number of people right there in, uh, in his area. And what I do recommend, though, particularly since you've had this problem in the past of not getting what you expected, I think you need to be very specific about what you're looking for. These people will, in every case, at least according to what I've been told as to how the Garrett Planning Network works, they are all willing to work on an hourly basis. Now, let me assure you that many of them also probably manage money on a fee basis, taking a percentage of the money under management. And, and for a lot of people, that is the better way. But for people who just want some guidance so they can do it themselves, most of the work themselves, better, somebody who's really understanding and charges by the hour is, is a smart thing to do. But you need to know, and they need to know specifically, what your needs are. are. And you're not, in many cases, people aren't looking for a total plan that's going to cost you know, 3000 to $5,000. They're looking to solve very specific problems. That doesn't mean you don't have to look at the other things. You probably do, but you don't have to go as deep, maybe. Spend as many hours, maybe, if you're just looking to find and determine a couple of major, major hurdles that you're looking for. And um, I think if you interview a couple of them to, to, to ask them, Are these, this, is this the kind of work you do? How many years have you been doing it? Am I the kind of client in terms of the amount of money that I have I need help with? In some cases, people work on very large uh, accounts, and other people will take smaller accounts. So I think that interview process up front, to get a commitment for what this person is able to do and willing to do, will be the right thing to do. Number three, uh, 
this is a question partly about what happens when an ETF closes, uh, closes down. In this particular case, this person has money in an ETF, uh, SLYV, which is a uh, uh, small cap value, a Spider S&P small cap value fund, uh, an ETF. Uh, and that's S as in Sam, L, Y, V as in victory. Now, this is a very fine ETF. We've recommended it for some time. Uh, and what his concern is, I should say, hmm, her concern, I'm sorry, Susan, uh, is uh, that the, the, the ETF only has about $2 billion dollars. Uh, under management, and uh, and they're concerned that they'll have to close the ETF down. It's not as easy as a mutual fund. When the mutual fund closes down, it's normally merged into another fund, and there's no tax implication. Uh, with an ETF, they can't they can't, to the best of my knowledge, they can't be merged into another ETF. So there is a liquidation process that can lead to taxation on, on profits. A $2 billion ETF is a good-sized ETF, but I do understand their concern. And if you really want to, to understand about the liquidation of an ETF, if that's a concern you have, I recommend you go to thebalance.com and read an article entitled what happens when an ETF closes its doors? It's a, it's a very good article on that, on that process. I might mention for Susan and other people who might have this same concern, another small cap value uh, ETF is IJS, as in Sam, and this is an iShares small cap 600 value ETF, uh, basically very similar to, to the, uh, uh, the Spider a small cap value. Uh, if you look at the track records, whether you go for five years or you go for 15, the returns are almost exactly the same. But IJS has seven billion dollars under management rather than two billion if that's a concern and by the way uh, IJS also has I think about the same oh slightly higher slightly higher uh, um, uh, management fee or I should say operational expense 0.15 for the spider 0.25 for the uh, IJS and it has been IGA, IJS, even after fees, that has slightly, just slightly, by one-tenth of a percent, uh, outperformed uh, SLYV. And number four, uh, this particular question has to do with backtesting data for Fidelity ETFs or mutual fund portfolios uh, to 2000s for 2007 through 2009. And uh, 
what they're concerned about uh, is how the ETFs, the strategies that we recommend, how they perform during that period. This individual is 67 years old, retired, and looking at changing some of what they have into the ETF portfolio. Uh, also, um, he's concerned uh, at, at the, that what he went through back then was a loss of 34% of the value of his portfolio, 2007 through 2009. And he says, at this stage of my life, that would really hurt, and I'm not sure I would be around for the recovery. Kindly advise, he says. Uh, by the way, he also says, I've enjoyed your books immensely and uh, straight to the point, better than any life membership to AAII. Very, very kind of you to say that, sir. Well, let me talk about the 2007 through 2009 period. And I'm looking at the calendar years as I look back at that period. And uh, if you had the, uh, the portfolio uh, spread uh, between uh, U and U.S. and international equities, and if you were all equities at the end of that three-year period, you were down 17%. Now, I'm not sure that in his question that he is talking about from the... From the uh, point of, of uh, the beginning of 2007 to the end of 2009, or a high point in 2007 to the low point in 2009. But over that three-year period, uh, the strategy was down 17%. If you were 50% in fixed income and 50% in equity, because the reality is, if you're worried about losing 34% and you're 67 years old and you're not sure you're going to live long enough to recover, you certainly aren't going to want to be in an all-equity portfolio. Now, I'm 75 and I'm 50-50, 50 stock, 50 bonds. Uh, and I know that uh, built into that uh, that portfolio is a loss of somewhere between 20 and 25% potentially in a year. So even a 50-50 strategy uh, may not be the right answer at age 67. But uh, certainly over that three-year period, you could have broken even if you had had that bond, the bond portion there to protect you from those losses. And remember, the bond portion was, in fact, in, in governments, uh, uh, not, in, uh, not in corporates, because uh, corporates had a terrible, terrible year in 2008. But to be fair, they came back real strong in 2009. I'm going to be talking about that later, either today or, or, or next week. All right, now let's look here at number five. Now this one says, uh, I really love your website and read your literature all the time. I hope you listen to the podcast too, by the way, Kathy. I'm, because that's where you're going to get your answer here. 
Uh, I'm now retired and I manage my own investments and I'm relatively conservative when it comes to buying. But I'm Johnny-come-lately and miss out on things when they're beginning an upturn. I don't want to miss out on what I'm hearing will be a really big deal around November when it's likely medical marijuana will be legalized in six states. I've heard a lot of money can be made on penny pot stocks, but there are so many, I don't know how to pick, or if I even should get into it. May I have your advice, please? Well, I don't know whether you're going to think that uh, my response is advice, because the first thing um, that I have to say is, I don't know enough about those individual stocks to to know whether they are fairly priced if you bought them today or whether you're buying the earnings that are possible 10 years from now. Remember back in the high-tech days in 99, 98, even early part of 2000, you could be paying a thousand times earnings. I mean, they were discounting future growth out for many, many, many years, kind of as if things weren't going to get in the way of that success in between. And we know in hindsight now that it was a bubble. And could there be a pot bubble? I suppose it's possible. And obviously, there's a big question as to how much of your portfolio that, uh, that, that you're going to be exposing to this very high-risk investment. Now, a lot of people say they're willing to play, speculate, take more risk with 10% of their portfolio. I think that's okay as long as it's not money they're ever going to need. The problem is, how can we know whether it is or isn't money that we're going to need when we don't know what challenges we're going to face financially in the future? So if you have twice as much money as you're going to need to retire, or maybe just 50% more money than you're going to need to retire, when it's sitting right there in that account, and you know there's no risk of not having enough when it comes time that you start to pay yourself, feel free. But uh, I certainly am, am not comfortable advising that people speculate. Now, where do you go to get good recommendations? I have no idea. I do know that Motley Fool wrote an article, 26 Risks You Need to Know about investing in marijuana. And then, of course, in that article, they're going to tell you that they've got 10 better recommendations than the marijuana companies. So, God, everybody has got a pitch, don't they? So, uh, it's, it's speculative. I don't know how to recommend one way or the other, except to say, I hope you got all your bases covered to take care of your financial future. Um, and, and by the way, if you see this in yourself, Kathy, if you see that you tend to be late getting into things, 
I'd have to ask, uh, did you, were you late getting into the technology issues in 1999 and 2000, or were you there in 96 and 97 before the, the, the huge run happened? If you got tagged in that run-up, I would be concerned that it might be happening again. Number six. This is a question comment about the uh, upcoming information that's coming out on the uh, two fund for life portfolio, uh, and I and I I think it's worth addressing because this particular listener uh, he he says I'm a guy who frets and fusses over every percentage point allocation in your ultimate buy and hold portfolio. I want the best possible return I can get based on the history as shown in your excellent work and with the help of others who contributed. And so the work of constructing the many asset classes in the ultimate buy and hold is fine with me. Having said that, I still look forward to what you will be revealing in October in your shortened versions. And then in parens, he says, I hate to use the term dumbed down, but I don't understand how some people seem to want a quick and easy solution to such important matters. I honestly believe that any person of reasonable intelligence can follow your instructions and do this yourself. The fund companies, Vanguard, etc., like, like Vanguard, will hold your hand as you do the work. Chuck, I appreciate your comments. And I think there are a lot of people who are willing to do the extra work of maintaining what could be a a portfolio of 10-plus different mutual funds or ETFs. But there's a huge, huge market of people who not only do they not want to deal with 10 different uh, equity asset classes, whether it's... uh, following the, 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 the guidance of somebody who is saying they should replace uh, fund A with fund B at this point because of lower costs or something, and then the, the rebalancing, and then the changing from how much in equities and how much in fixed income um, based on your age or your risk tolerance. They don't want to deal with any of that. And fortunately for those people, they have something very, very special. They have a target date fund. It is, it is one that maybe the most meaningful investment product that's ever been offered for people who either don't give a damn about being involved in it. They don't see anything the least bit interested in the chase to higher returns, but they still want to be prudent. So what I'm trying to do, and Chris Pedersen and Daryl Balls, Rich Buck, this great team uh, of uh, of folks that uh, have donated so much of their life to this project, uh, the idea is to give to those people who are wanting to turn over the process to somebody to make it an automatic process. I want to figure out how to give them a better shot 
in terms of a financial return that would be close to what you're likely to get, Chuck, with all the all the trauma and work of of a 10 fund, 10 ETF strategy. That's what we're shooting for. So this is this is the ultimate making investing boring but beautiful. Uh, and for people who just want nothing to do with it, in fact, if they were given the choice what they would rather have, forget about me having to put money into a 401k and figure out how to do this. Just pay me a pension, would you? That's what they'd really like. So that's, that is the quest that we're on. And I suspect that many people like yourself are not going to be very challenged by the two-fund solution because it is so unbelievably dirt, dirt simple, literally, for the rest of your life. But people like you, Chuck, you have friends who say, you know, I, I, I'd sure like to do better, but boy, I'm not going to go through what you're going through. Uh, that money stuff, that's not important to me, they'll say. I just want somebody to take care of it for me. And I don't want to pay somebody an advisory fee. Well, you're going to tell people about the two fund for life strategy. I really believe that. And that's the whole purpose why, why I'm going to work hard to make sure all of you, even those of you, especially those of you who really understand what I'm wanting people to do and what I think that extra outcome would be, but it isn't for you. It's for the people that you like or you love or you care about or you just like being smart and sharing something that's savvy. I, I hope that helps, Chuck. Thanks. Uh, the next question comes from a stockbroker. I think this is, this is wonderful. Uh, this is a, um, it's, it's, it's a great question. I've, I've gotten it from other people. In fact, I think I've addressed it. But the fact that it is coming from uh, somebody who's in the industry uh, makes it kind of a fun conversation to have. I, I wish I, I had this uh, fellow right here uh, to talk with one-on-one, and, and I'd like to learn more about how he builds portfolios. But he, after three years having followed our work, he's wondering why you still favor VTWV over VBR. By the way, they're both, they're both fine uh, small cap value uh, funds or ETFs. Uh, but let me tell you why I do favor one over the other. And there are, uh, there are a number of reasons that uh, could be... Uh, uh, could be compared, ways to compare, but let me just look at the easy one. VTWV, Victor Thomas World Victor, um, it, the first thing I notice about it is it underperformed VBR over the last five years. Could that be the reason that the person thinks that VBR is better than VTWV? This is one of the biggest challenges we have in this industry, 
is it is hard when somebody sees that, that, that something is doing better but looks kind of like that. You want to be in the one that's doing better. Well, why is VBR? Why has it been doing better? Even though VTWV has way more small cap value, it has a much lower price-to-book ratio. Uh, this average size company that's in the portfolio is way smaller. VTWV has all of the advantages, but VBR has been in a market that large has been better than small, that more growth-oriented has been better than value. So guess what? The small-cap value portfolio that is on average larger, on average less deeply discounted value, that is, and by the way, a higher price-to-book ratio rather than lower, it's likely in that five-year period to do better than the one that is probably positioned to win in the long term. You, you remember the numbers of 40-year uh, periods that, that uh, the small cap value as an asset class, that it was in first place over all the other major asset classes. It was about 94% of the 40-year periods since 1926. Guess what happens when you start to add growth or when you start to, to add larger companies? All of a sudden, you're rarely at the top of the list. So uh, it, it's, it's really being aware not only of of what the characteristics are of your particular investment, but what could be the conditions that would make it underperform your expectations? Because if you understand those conditions, when it happens, you'll say, yeah, well, that happens from time to time, but I'm staying the course because I believe in the long run, a smaller, small, a more deeply discounted value, a lower price to book ratio will pay the reward that I'm after. But guess what? It might not happen in your lifetime. That's the nature of risk. Well, I hope there was something in this podcast that you find uh, helpful. I appreciate the people uh, continuing to send questions. I must apologize that I don't get to more of them. Uh, as I have, uh, I'm sure, mentioned in the past, one of my goals is to find somebody who wants to uh, work with me so that we can get to more of these uh, of these questions. Uh, somebody who knows uh, just as much about this as I do. And I'm, I, I know there are some people out there who've been around like I have who may, now that they are retired from the industry, be willing to, uh, uh, to give some of this kind of uh, feedback. So Thanks for listening. Pass this on to friends if, uh, and family if you think it would help them. And uh, stay tuned. We've got lots of great stuff in the works. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. 
For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.